Welcome to The Word at First Pres. During the fall, we're doing a sermon series called Making Peace with the Pandemic. Each week, we're going to examine a different aspect of how the pandemic has changed our lives. We're going to reflect on our experiences and process what we've gained and lost. Thanks for listening. Our first scripture reading comes from Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 10 through 15. I have seen the business that God has given to everyone to be busy with. He has made everything suitable for its time. Moreover, he has put a sense of past and future into their minds. Yet they cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I know there is nothing better for them than to be happy and enjoy themselves as long as they live. Moreover, it is God's gift that they all should eat and drink and take pleasure in all their toil. I know that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done this so that all should stand in awe before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already is. And God seeks out what has gone by. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. Our second scripture reading today comes from Luke 19, verses 1 through 10. This is a story of Zacchaeus, the wee little man, right? That you all may remember from the hymn. He entered Jericho and was passing through it. A man was there named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. He was trying to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was short in stature. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree to see him because he was going to pass that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried down and was happy to welcome him. All who saw it began to grumble and said, He has gone to be the guest of one who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, Look, half of my possessions, Lord, I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will pay back four times as much. Then Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek out and to save the lost. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, well, it's good to see you all again. And I'm glad that we're back together. If you've been here for the last couple weeks, you know we've been doing a sermon series called Making Peace with the Pandemic. And the idea behind this series is that we are looking at all of the various ways that the pandemic has impacted our lives. For some of us, the pandemic time was a very challenging time. We struggled to get by, we had to work to get through it. For others of us, the pandemic was a time for us to really kind of reset our priorities and to be able to figure out what's important to us. The goal of the series ultimately is for us to look at the way the pandemic has changed our world, changed us, and ultimately how our faith can guide us towards healing. Now each week, as you know, we have been beginning with interviews with two members of our congregation. And these interviews, they set the stage for what we're talking about each week. And as I say every time, for these people to sit down and tell you about what's been going on, it's not easy to do. 
Uh, they are very vulnerable. They're talking about hard things that happened in their lives. And so if you see them, please say thank you. So today we're going to hear from Don Bruce, who of course uh, is a regular at this service, and we're going to hear from Mike Parrish. Both of them suffered job losses during the pandemic, and they're going to tell you about what that was like for them. So let's watch and see what they have to say. The World Health Organization has declared coronavirus a global pandemic. More than 3,700 people have now been added to the COVID-19 death toll in New York City. COVID-19 has battered the global economy, causing the worst recession since the Great Depression. COVID has killed more people in one day than the number of people killed on D-Day. So I was working at this company called AIT Logistics and I wasn't very happy there. So I was looking for another position. I got a call from another mortgage company and they offered me a position, something I had been trying to do. I've been trying to get into this company for a while. Got in there and it was nothing as what they said it was gonna be, but I was just gonna hold on for better things. Got there, COVID hit, they laid all the temporary people off. So then I was, ended up without a job. I worked for a company that uh, manufactured food service uh, equipment. I led a team of uh, R&D engineers uh, designing equipment uh, that, that was utilized in the kitchens of hospitals to prepare and deliver food uh, to patients. Led a team of about seven engineers in that role. Prior to the pandemic, our business was very good. And uh, a couple of months after really the pandemic was realized, the company really started to feel some of the repercussions of the pandemic. But the reality was that hospitals were spending their money on the intensive care uh, side because there were so many patients coming into intensive care and they really didn't have funds left in their budget uh, to spend for the food service equipment. The company uh, stayed in business, but uh, unfortunately, uh, because of the business climate, they had to make some tough decisions to, to lay off a significant number of people. I don't know if you remember like the old school carnival games and it was this, it was this um, ride and there's a circle around and the floor would just drop from underneath you, but you're still spinning around in a circle real fast. That's what I felt like. I felt like my whole world just dropped from underneath me because at this point I left a real job that I had been at for like over a year as a real employee to go to a temporary assignment that didn't pan out because the world crashed and then my wife would have to be the sole provider. And our living circumstances don't allow us to survive on just her income alone. It's hard, obviously, on the ego. Um, it's my first experience uh, being laid off. You know, initially, um, it's a shock to the system. And then you, you kind of wonder what the next steps are, you know, especially if you've not been in that situation before. It didn't take long, you know, to sort of understand, all right, that's, that's over with. Uh, now I need to move on and find, uh, find other opportunities and find what my next chapter is going to be. 
In these times, it was very unusual, I think, because so many people were looking for jobs. You know, there, there were a lot of people in the same situation that I was. So uh, for every job opportunity, there were so many people uh, that would apply, you know, for that opportunity. Uh, you do have opportunities that look very promising and you'll get through several rounds of interviews and, and you'll get to that sort of final phase where you're talking, you think, to the, to the last person you need to talk to. You're one of the last two candidates for the role and you don't get it. That's a little bit uh, uh, deflating, but even through those situations, you try to just say, okay, that one didn't work out, move on to the next opportunity. In the time frame I was out of work, I got sick, I had a surgery. I got phone calls for interviews and I was going to the interviews, but the interviews, when you got to them, they were nothing like what they said they were when you read about it and when you felt out for it. So I went to a lot of bogus interviews that I just wouldn't accept, or they'll say, hey, I'll pay you this amount, but then when you get there, it's a much lower amount. I got laid off in May. I didn't start working again to November. And there's one agency this lady was so nice and she was so, I don't know, it just, we kind of clicked. She said she had been having a position and she had been holding for me because she thought that it would be something good for me. She had three other positions. I interviewed all three positions. I got all three positions. I took the one that I thought would be better suited for me that would give me the less stress. Two weeks later, I got COVID. I was out of work again. They told me that they liked me even, I was only there two weeks. They say, hey, I, we like you. We're not gonna give your spot away, just get better. Got done with COVID, recovered, went back to work. I'm gonna work for a company uh, in California and the company is a manufacturer of educational products for, uh, for children. I'll be leading a team of uh, design engineers. I'm an engineer and, and so um, I went through about uh, four phases of interviewing uh, with, with the company. We're going to California. We're, uh, very excited about it. My total job search time was about 11 months, so it took quite a while to find the right opportunity. No matter how hard you hit the ground, you have to have that strength to get back up, whether it's strength, your own personal strength, or strength from friends and family. Wherever you can pull it from, just stand up. And I promise you, once you get back on your two feet, it may not work as fast as you want it to work, but baby steps and you will get there. I would say that keep the faith and don't get uh, too down about the job rejections and the opportunity rejections because those will happen. We had um, a wonderful experience at First Press and, and our son Thomas, he had a fantastic experience. He grew in his faith. We're gonna make sure that we stay connected. We're gonna watch the services. We're gonna stay connected to the people. and. But yeah, it's one of the things that we're going to miss the most about this area. Thank you. <laughs> so I don't need to tell you guys that probably one of the greatest impacts of the pandemic, hands down, was the loss of jobs. I think we all know that, right? I mean, the pandemic caused the economy just to come to a screeching halt. Right after we went into quarantine, the economy shed 30 million jobs immediately, right then. 
And it has taken a long time for us to kind of reclaim many of those jobs. And the domino effect of that has really been staggering for a lot of people. So being out of work, you of course, can't, you can't pay your bills, you get behind on loans, and so you lose your car, you maybe lose your house. Some, a lot of people had to move in with uh, family members or in really bad circumstances if they didn't have anybody. Uh, they ended up in a situation where they had to be homeless. Now, thankfully for Dawn and for Mike, neither of them had to deal with that situation where they became homeless. But as you heard Dawn talk about, she needs both of those incomes in order to survive. And the tough thing about her situation is she left a permanent position to go to this temporary position with the hopes that she was going to be able to do better, to have better pay. And you know, what Dawn did, interesting enough, if you look at the statistics around what was happening in early 2020, that was actually really common. A lot of people had just changed positions because the economy was really thriving at that point and people were moving into different positions to be able to get better pay. And so, of course, the pandemic comes, and I love her analogy that, uh, that ride, that carnival ride, which is better known as what, the, the Gravitron, you know, right? Where it's spinning you around. And have you been on one before? You know what I'm talking about? Gravitron? Okay, and sometimes they even, so the floor comes out from underneath you. The real fun ones are the ones that like actually like <laughs> go up vertical while you're doing it. But I think that's a great, great uh, analogy because when the floor comes out from under you, if you don't have that safety net, my goodness, the stress that that puts you under because all these questions are going through your mind. Am I gonna have enough money to make it? Am I gonna be able to afford to pay my bills? Am I gonna lose my house, right, my car? Am I even gonna be able to afford to eat? That is something that day after day weighs heavy on you and I think that it can take an emotional toll. Now. When we heard from Mike, what he was talking about was that was the first time he had ever been laid off, which was really hard for him because he's an engineer. His skills have always been in demand his entire life. And yet he found himself in this position where, by the way, ironically, he's in the medical industry, right? Which of course, all of this money during the pandemic is being funneled into medicine, but of course it's being funneled into treatment, not into food services. And what does Mike say, I thought it was really interesting, he says, of course, it's a hit to the ego to, to lose your job, but I think it's something a little bit even deeper than that, because losing your job is more than just being rejected by your company. Our work, our employment, is very important to the way we ascertain our value as human beings. So, to work is to create. To work is to contribute to something greater than yourself. So when you work, I think we can all agree, like, what's the point of working? You're trying to get money, get resources for yourself, for your family, but it also brings meaning to your life. And so for better or for worse, our jobs are really connected to our worth as human beings. Now, in the best case scenario, right, you love your job, you find a lot of meaning in it, and you get paid well. That's best case scenario, right? But what happens when your job is just a job? What happens when the work that you're doing, you don't love it, you don't find a lot of meaning in it, but you're just trying to pay the bills? What does that do to your meaning and to your worth as a human being? There was an interesting Gallup poll that was taken right before the pandemic in 2019. 
And what they found was that globally, 85% of people hate their jobs. Globally. That means only 15% of people actually like what they're doing. Now, here in the United States, it's a little bit different. 70% of people hate their jobs, and 30% of people actually like what they're doing. But that number is really instructive, isn't it? 70%? So what does that tell you? I think that tells you something. That most people are simply working to live. That their jobs are not a reflection of their passion. True? I mean, that's what it sounds like to me. And that's really tough because we spend 100,000 hours of our lives working. That's a lot of time to spend doing something you don't like. And if you're going to tie your worth and your value into your job, and you don't like what you're doing or you hate what you're doing, then it can feel very quickly as though your life is meaningless. Do you remember back in April of this year, 2021, do you remember there was 8.1 million, 8.1 million job postings and they couldn't get people to fill them? Do you remember that? And I remember listening to pundits say a bunch of different things. Oh, the pandemic has made people lazy. Or they said, the reason why there's a labor shortage is because there's just too much money flooded in the economy and people have enough money where they don't have to work anymore. So these are things that I kept hearing. And I'm sure that was true maybe for some people. But I actually think it's a much deeper problem than just that. Because when the pandemic hit, I think for the first time in many people's lives, they had the opportunity to step back and to actually think and reflect on what they were doing with their lives and with their jobs. And I think what a lot of people realize is that they didn't like what they were doing. I think they realized, you know what? I don't wanna do this anymore. And so when those jobs got posted again, the same job they had, or maybe it was a similar job, even with better pay, they sat there and they said to themselves, you know what? I don't wanna find myself in the position where I hate what I'm doing. I don't wanna do that anymore. I wanna do something that I enjoy, something that brings meaning to my life. I don't wanna just have to work to live. Does that make sense to what, to what I'm saying? Like, does that make sense? Yeah? So this is across actually all sectors of the society too, of all sectors of the economy. The one place where I found it to be really fascinating, and this kind of blew me away, was looking at educated millennials. So educated millennials, they're in this subset group. And a lot of them right now, right, that's tw people 21 to 40, most of those people are starting to move into management level positions or upper management positions. Now, how did educated millennials grow up? Well, a lot of them grew up in great circumstances in the sense that they had everything that they wanted, right? So they, had, they, had, they, they wanted for nothing. But their parents were working non-stop. Their parents were often rarely around, and in fact, if you look at the stats, almost 50% of millennial parents got divorced. And so as they're negotiating their contracts, what they're looking at and what they're saying to their employers is, I'm only going to work 40 hours a week. And if the employer says, you can't do that, they say, okay, well, I'm going to go somewhere else. They will only work 40 hours a week. And the reason why is because they watched as their parents 
worked so hard and destroyed their relationships. And they are not willing to allow their jobs to destroy their relationships and their families. And so for some of these businesses that are used to having people work 70, 80 hours a week without complaint, they're running into a problem. They're very frustrated by this. But the truth is, is that actually, I think that they're onto something. Like, frankly, I would agree with that. I think that there's something to that. And in fact, Solomon agrees with him in Ecclesiastes. Solomon is right behind the educated millennials on this. Let's take a look at what Solomon has to say. I have seen the business that God has given to everyone to be busy with. I know that there is nothing better for them than to be happy and enjoy themselves as long as they live. Moreover, it is God's gift that all should eat and drink and take pleasure in all their toil. Now, I love this because what he's essentially saying is, so you're going to have to work to survive. Like, that's just part of the deal, right? But what God wants for you is God wants you to take some enjoyment from your life. God wants you to take pleasure from what you're doing, right? But if you read Ecclesiastes closely, there's this really fascinating thing that he says. He basically tells us, you should not try to derive your meaning from your job. He says, that's a fool's errand, which I find to be very fascinating. So from Solomon's perspective, like you should take pride in your work. You should enjoy what you do, but don't try to find your meaning from your work. For him, he says, find your meaning from your relationship with God and your relationship with others, which I find to be very fascinating because it's like Solomon is 3,000 years ahead of that Gallup poll, isn't he? Where he's talking about, like, you know, don't put everything into your job. Like, don't think that's what's going to provide you with your meaning, which is fascinating, isn't it? Because Hasn't the whole of Western civilization kind of missed the boat on this one? He talked about it 3,000 years ago. How did we get in the place today where we put so much of our meaning and value into our work? Because here's the thing. I think most of us in here know intuitively that that doesn't make sense. Because when I do a funeral for somebody, I can tell you that what I'm talking about in that funeral, almost across the board, is people's relationships with each other. If I do talk about somebody's job, it's because that job fostered relationships. So I think we know intuitively that's true, right? That our relationships bring us meaning. But where did this idea come from that we find our meaning and our worth and our value only in our work? Well, I hate to tell you this, but the Presbyterian Church is actually somewhat to blame for this problem. So the Presbyterian Church, the theological underpinnings of where we are come from a man named John Calvin. This guy right here, great looking guy, right? Very dour. Fun fact about John Calvin, thought you all might like to know this, he actually died in the pulpit while he was preaching. Hard way to go down, I'll tell you that right now. Not the way I wanna go out, for sure. <laughs> so, John Calvin, he had this notion, this belief that your work is a way that you can praise God in the world. This was his idea, right? That by working, you are doing God's work in the world. And so he called this a vocation. And the way, the, his idea behind this was that every single person has gifts and talents, right? They have a gift and a talent. And by using those gifts and talents, you are doing the very thing that God created you to do. 
Now, in theory, this is a wonderful idea, right? So you have gifts and talents, you do those things, and by doing those things, you fulfill God's purpose for your life. And so what Calvin does is he marries these two ideas together, your work and God's calling. He says those two things can be the same, which is why we tend to try to find our meaning from our jobs. But again, in theory, wonderful idea. But what does that Gallup poll tell you? That's not really true, is it? Because here's the thing. Most people don't really know what they want to do with their lives in terms of work. I'm an outlier in this way. I remember being six years old, sitting in the pew, looking up at a pastor and saying, that's what I want to do. I don't know why I thought that, but I felt like that's where I needed to be. And I figured everybody was in that boat. But then I start talking to people, my friends, I'm like, what are you guys going to do when you get older? And they're like, no clue, couldn't tell you. And when you talk to people about how they fell in to their particular profession, it's usually this haphazard series of events where they're like, well, I was talking to a guy who introduced me to somebody else, and I got into this job, and that's how I ended up in my career. Or my parents, they had a family friend, and they gave me a chance, and that's how I got into it. Or my family gave me a job. I became part of the family business, which is why we read the story of Zacchaeus this morning, family businesses. So Zacchaeus, he's a tax collector. And I'm going to tell you all about this for the purposes of going through, because I need to tell you about the Roman tax collection system. If you've been here before and you heard this, I'm very sorry, but we need to go through it one more time just to make sure we're all on the same page. So, if you think taxes are bad today, I don't want you to complain about it because taxation in the Roman era was between 40 and 90% of your income. And it varied so much because of the way that they did taxation at that time. There was no set tax rate like we have today. So the way it worked was the Roman government in Rome, they would get together and they would say, okay, here's how much money we need to run the Roman government. And they would send numbers out to all the various provinces, and the governors of those provinces would get a tax bill, essentially, and they would have to find a way of paying the tax bill. So what they would do is they'd say, well, we need some money to run our provincial government, right? So they would inflate that amount. And so when they got together with the chief tax collectors, that would be a man like Zacchaeus, they would say, okay, you need to collect this amount of money, which is inflated from what Rome had told them, right? But here's the thing, those tax collectors, they didn't make a salary. So what they would do is they would inflate it even further. So Zacchaeus, he would get together with the local tax collectors, that's who he oversaw, and he would inflate the number again, and he would skim some of that off the top for himself. And then the local tax collectors, because they didn't make a salary, once they went out to you, the average person, it would be inflated again so that then they could pay themselves. In all, it was a very corrupt system, and it just depended on how much they wanted to swindle you in terms of the amount of taxes that you paid. We on the same page? Okay, so you got Zacchaeus, right? Zacchaeus, he is a, a tax collector, a chief tax collector, and as it says in the story, he was very rich. So he has benefited from this system. And Jesus knows this when he goes to his house to have a meal with this man. Now, Zacchaeus, he is called a sinner. Do you know why? Because he is considered to be a traitor to his people. He has turned his back on them, he is serving Rome, and he's basically going after them and gutting them of their money so that he can be rich. Now here's my question for you. Did Zacchaeus choose to be a tax collector? No, he did not. To be a tax collector, 
Your father had to be a tax collector. It's something you were born into, right? You just kind of went that way. So let's take Calvin's idea. Was Zacchaeus, was he given the God-given talent of being able to rip people off? Was that what God gave him the ability to do? Right? Was this the vocation he was born to perform? Right? No. No. He became a tax collector because it was the family business. His dad was a tax collector. And it's all that he knows. So he gets together with Jesus, right? And he says to Jesus at the end of the, his time with him, he says, look, I'm going to sell half my possessions, give the money to the poor, and then anybody who I've defrauded, I'll pay back four times as much. Why the change of heart? He changes his tune because he realizes through his time with Jesus that his job does not define his meaning in life. And that by giving that money back to people who are in need, he is restoring the relationships that have been destroyed as a result of his profession. So what does he understand as a result of his time with Jesus? People matter more than your profession. That is what he comes away with. And I think that this is such a wonderful story for us because it teaches us something so critical about what it means to be a Christian community, which is that as a community, we have to be there for the needs of other people, that when we invest in people, that is where we find our greatest meaning. Yesterday, we had a funeral for Andy Taylor. This is Francie Taylor's husband and the father to Gabe and Moss. Now, that funeral was really challenging. He died very unexpectedly. And I want to say thank you to those of you who could be there for that because that family needs us right now. They need people to be present. They need people to lift them up. And that is part of what we are here to do. We have to be there as a community for those of us who are suffering and in need. And they're going to need that not just for a few months, but for years. Because getting through this is very, very challenging, very hard. Tough ages for those kids 11 and 13. And so this is what I want to leave you with this morning. So I want to end. I hope that you take great pride in your work. I hope you find enjoyment and pleasure from what you do. I hope that's the case. But I hope you won't make the mistake of trying to find all of your meaning and your value in your jobs. As Solomon says, that's a fool's errand. I hope that you will take the time to invest in your relationships. Your relationship with God, your relationship with your friends, your family, your relationships with the people in this community. Because I will tell you right now, if you're willing to invest in those relationships, you will never be at a loss for meaning and purpose in your life. If you love others and allow them to love you, you will find the worth and value that you seek in your life. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.firstpresah.org. For more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.